Section One of Life and Sayings of Mrs. Partington. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Deborah Lynn. Life and Sayings of Mrs. Partington and Others of the Family by B. P. Shelliber. Section One. To the friends of Mrs. Partington, whose favor has encouraged the old lady in her eccentric sayings, this volume is respectively dedicated. Prefatory. Mrs. Partington once declined an introduction to a party because she did not wish to be introduced to anyone she was not acquainted with. She needs no introduction now. In all parts of our own land and over the sea, her name is familiar as a household word, and as Mrs. Partington would say, forms a tributary clause to many a good story or an apology for many a bad one. A smile attending the utterance of the name in evidence of its appreciation. But a preface, of course, is expected, and so, in the most gentle manner in the world, we will tell you, reader, a little story about the origin of the Partington sayings, and why they were said, and why they are here collected. Perhaps you have guessed it all, but it is well to be certain. In the first place, they were written, as the canine quadruped is said to have gone to church, for fun, for the author's own amusement, with a latent hope, however half-indulged, that the big world which the author very much loves and wishes to please, might see something in them at which to smile. He was modest in his hope, and hid himself behind an incognito, impenetrable, he thought, where he could see the effect of his mild squibs upon the public. The result pleased him, and he kept vigorously blazing away unseen, as much so as the simple bird that thrusts its head under a leaf and fancies itself unobserved, until they have arisen to a magnitude that some people might deem respectable. The origin and object of the Partington sayings being thus described, the motive for their collection shall be confessed. It is the hope that their author may make a little money on them. He is not so squeamish or pretending as to talk of public good and public amusement as his leading motives in the matter, but if these can be obtained through the publication, he will be most happy. The author confesses to certain pressing contingencies, by no means peculiar to him, however, among authors, that would be relieved by a generous return for his outlay of time, and that his pouch may take a more silvery hue from the circulation of his book, is a consummation devoutly by him to be wished. This motive, so entirely original for the publication of a book, the author has secured under the guarantee of his copyright. There might be no necessity for this, where all the rest of the author tribe are writing and printing from higher motives, but he pleads selfishness, and, like the old lady in her variance with St. Paul, there is where he and they differ. Some wiseacre has recently made a discovery of what we have proclaimed from the outset, that the name of Mrs. Partington was not original with us, that Sidney Smith first gave it to the world. Most profound discoverer! But the character we claim is ours. And whether it had been embodied in Mrs. Smith or Brown, instead of Mrs. Partington, would have been immaterial. Those sayings are ours, and we venture to affirm that Sidney Smith would not lay claim to them from the fact that they were uttered by one of the same name as his heroine of the mop. Because, forsooth, he had spoken of Mrs. Partington sweeping back the Atlantic with her broom, would he claim the illustrious Paul, and the roguish Isaac, and the jocose Roger, and the great Philanthropos, and the poetical Wideswarth, as his progeny? We trow not even though others might be found ready to do it for him. The reputation of Mrs. Partington belongs to the Boston Post, as much as if Sidney Smith had never uttered the name in his great speech in Parliament. The character has been drawn from life. The Mrs. Partington we have depicted is no fancy sketch, and no malaprop imitation, as some have thought, who saw in it naught but distorted words and queer sentences. We need no appeal to establish this fact. Mrs. Partington is seen everywhere, and as often without the specks and cap as with them. There are many matters placed within the covers of this book that the sponsor of Mrs. Partington has written beneath the inspiration of her geniality 
to the influence of which alone their merit, if they possess any, is to be attributed. Her portrait looks down upon him now as he writes, and her pleasant voice seems inwoven with the Souchong smile it sheds, and seems to say, Print a book. Biography of Mrs. Partington Relict of P. P. Corporal Paul Partington, whose name is immortalized by its association with that of the universal Mrs. Partington, a portion of whose oracular sayings our book comprises, was a lineal descendant of Seek the Kingdom Continually Partington, who came from the old country, by water probably, somewhere in the early days of our then not very extensive civilization. At that time people were not in the habit of putting everything into the papers as they do now, when the painting of a front door, or the setting of a pane of glass, or the laying of an egg is deemed of sufficient consequence for a paragraph. Much, therefore, of interest concerning the early history of his family is merely known by the faint light which tradition has thrown upon it. A story has come down to us from remote time, through the oracular lips of the oldest inhabitants, that seek the kingdom continually parting tone, abbreviated to seek, was troubled in the old country by certain unpleasant and often occurring reminders of indebtedness. He clept bills which were always like a summer night falling dew, and certain urgently pressing importunities, the which, added to a faith that was not too popular by any means, at last induced him to warily scrape together such small means as he could, and incontinently retire from metropolitan embarrassment to the comparative quiet of an emigrant's life where he might encounter nothing more annoying than the howling of wolves or the yelling of savages, sweet music both when contrasted with the horror comprised in the words, "'Pay that bill!' which had long distressed him. Here the voice of the dunner was done, and Seek, under his own vine and pine-tree, worshipped God and cheated the Indians according to the dictates of his own conscience and the custom of the times. But little, however, can be gleaned of the early supporters of the family name, save what we procure from the ancient family record, a Dudley Leavitt's almanac on which agricultural memoranda had been kept, and from the memory of such members of a foregone generation as remembered the Partington Mansion in Beanville, of course before it was torn down to make way for the new branch railroad. The new house, as the mansion has been called for a century, see the accompanying sketch drawn on a piece of birch bark by a native artist, to distinguish it from some old house that had at some previous time existed somewhere, was erected about the year blank, as is supposed, from the discovery of a receipted bill from Godfrey Pratt for aid in raising ye new edifice, which bears date as above, and likewise from the fact that a child was born to the erector of the new house the same year, which was duly chronicled in the ancient Bible, with other blessings, and the word house, is distinctly to be traced among them. It is supposed by some that the old house was upon a slight hill opposite the gentle acclivity upon which the new house stood, and fancied outlines of an ancient cellar are there discernible by those whose faith is large enough. But a younger class have set up another hypothesis, that what they suppose must have been a cellar was in reality an apple bin, and there is no knowing when or how the point will be determined. The new house was a staunch piece of work, erected at a time when men were honest and infused much of their own character into the work they put together. The beams of oak so sturdy that time, failing to make an impression upon them, gives up at last in despair. The interior of the mansion, in the latter day of its existence, contrasted gloomily with the modern houses that sprang like mushrooms around it. Its oak panelling and thick doors imparted an idea of strength and the huge beam overhead, beneath which a tall man could not stand erect in the low-studded room, showed no more signs of decay than if placed there a hundred years later. It was not destitute of ornament, for around the fireplace were perpetuated, in the everlastingness of Dutch crockery, numerous scriptural scenes, more creditable to the devotional spirit that conceived than to the art, or artlessness, that executed them. The house was intended as a garrison, and where the clapboards had chafed off were revealed the scarfed logs denoting where the loopholes were, and the leaden bullets still left there, which Paul was wont to dig out with his knife when a boy, 
and makes sinkers of for his fishing lines. Many a story that venerable house could tell of ancient warfare, of the midnight attack and gallant defense, but it never told a thing. It was in this house that Paul Partington was born and grew, amid all the luxuries that the town of Beanville afforded, said town at that time consisting of five houses and a barn. In this house he was married, the most momentous act of his life, as through the hymeneal gate came upon the world the dame whose name we are delighted to honor. We find upon the fly-leaf of a treatise on calcareous manures, yet sacredly treasured the following memorandum in the corporal's own writing, significant of the methodical habits of the man who shed, in after-life, as far as a corporal's warrant could do it, undying glory upon his country. Married this day, January the 3rd, 1808, to Ruth Trotter, by Reverend Mr. Job Snarl, forty bushes of potatoes to Widow Green. There is a blending of bliss and business in this entry that strikes one at the first glance. The record of the sale of the potatoes, in the same paragraph announcing his marriage to Ruth, might signify to some that they were held in equal regard. But we see the matter differently. The purchase of Ruth and the sale of the potatoes were the two great events of that important third of January, and they naturally associated themselves. So you, madam, might associate the birth of your firstborn, the most blissful moment of your life, with the miserable matter of the death of a lame duck or the blowing down of a pigsty. Of the courtship that preceded that marriage we can say nothing except what we have gleaned by accident from the old lady herself. In rebuking the want of sincerity of devotion nowadays on the part of lovers, she once spoke of a time when someone would ride a hard-trotting horse ten miles every night and back for the sake of sitting up with her, but no name was mentioned. When it is remembered that the ancient borough of Dog's Bondage was just ten miles from Beanville, it is easy enough to guess who the individual was. Ruth Partington, born Trotter, came amid sublunar scenes several years before the nineteenth century commenced. Consequently, she is older than eighteen hundred. She was a child by law for eighteen years before she became a woman and performed the duties encumbered upon her, as we have been informed by her, with great fidelity. We have often endeavored in fancy to picture the Ruth of dog's bondage in the check apron and homespun gown by the brook engaged in washing or basket in hand feeding the yellow corn to hungry ducks, emblematic of that throwing forth of gems that have since been scrambled for by admiring crowds, or seeking berries in the woods crowned with wintergreen as the meat of popular approbation surrounds her brow in the latter day of her existence, or engaged in incipient benevolences as binding up the broken limbs of barnyard favorites or protecting the songsters of the marsh from predatory boyhood, fitting for heralds of that matured benevolence which embraces the world in its scope here speaking the consoling word, and there dispensing comfort mingled with catnip tea. In fancy, we say, the check apron, homespun gown and all, are but the stuff that dreams are made of. There are vague reminiscences of things that have passed, which we catch occasionally, when Souchong has released the memory of Mrs. Partington from the overriding care for the world's welfare that would fain keep it home, and we roam back through scenes of her early life that breathe of rurality like a hayfield in June or a barnyard in the month of March. We have tales of apple parings and attendant scenes and suppers, of huskings full of incident and red ears, and resonant with notes the sweet import of which Mrs. Partington can well tell, in jolly quiltings, great with tattle and tea, and moonlight walks home with the laughter of mirth mingling with the song of the cricket in the hedge, or that of the monarch of the swamp singing his younglings to sleep in the distance, or the whippoorwill upon the bough, and stupendous candy pullings with their customary consequences to broad shirt collars and cheeks sweeter than molasses, and slides downhill on the ox sled runners in winter that the boys hauled up to the summit, disastrous at times to propriety and health, but full of a fun that looked at no result but its own enjoyment the means a secondary consideration. And there gleams through this a ray that reveals early loves and dreams that had an existence for a time, 
to be swallowed up eventually in admiration for that embodiment of war and peace, Paul Partington, whose flaming eye and sword upon an ensanguined muster-field won a regard that only ended in Beanville when the name of Trotter became merged in that of Partington. Tradition, which in this instance may be partly right, tells of rivalry for the possession of the bell of dog's bondage. We can conceive of rivalry among the men, and envy among the women, of struggles on the one part to gain her favour, on the other part the struggle to lose it by provoking her hostility. Hostility? Herein might arise a question as to whether so gentle a being ever entertained hostility to anything. We should be false to our object, that of writing a true biography of Mrs. Partington, did we pretend that she was perfect. We would take this pen and inkstand, as well as they have served us in our need, and throw them in the grate, before we would make any such assertion. But we must say that we never heard she had an enemy, and tradition, that grim old chap that has so many bad things to say about people, and so few that are good, never said a word about it. Doubtless many a rustic heart beat warm beneath a homespun coat of numberless years, and sighs redolent of feeling poured from beneath the rim of many an old bell-crowned hat of felt. But the meteor came, Paul swept the field, the heart of Ruth surrendered with discretion, and other people stood back. Great was this for dog's bondage. The sun rose on the brightest day of the year when it happened. The brook, that had frozen up previously, immediately thawed out. Two robins were seen looking round for places to build their nests, thinking it was spring, so mild was it. The lilac buds almost bursted in their anxiety to notice the occasion, and old farmers, as they talked to one another across dividing fences, spoke most sagaciously about the extraordinary spell of weather. As old Roger, Mrs. P.'s cousin, remarked when he heard the circumstance, "'It was a weather very like a lamb.' But as we were saying— Schools were not so common at that time as now, and as there was none nearer the Trotters than Huckleberry Lane in the upper parish, and as there was a quarrel between the upper and the lower parishes, old Trotter, who belonged with the lower, felt bound to stand by that section, though he knew nothing about the quarrel, and hence Ruth was kept at home to receive by the fireside the domestic accomplishments nowhere else to be learned, and drink in the oracular wisdom of the venerable Trotter as it fell from his lips through the aroma of pigtail tobacco and hard cider. Alas for Trotter! His day is done, his pipe is out, his cider has gone, and even dog's bondage has become a name obsolete among the places of the earth, that town rejoicing now in the more euphonious title of Clover Hill, probably from the fact of there not being a leaf of clover within seven miles of it. And thou, Dame Trotter, famous for pastry and poultry, beneath whose ready skill thanksgiving became a carnival of fat things, whose memory yet lingers about the olden home, now in stranger hands, with the fragrance of innumerable virtues, like the spicy odour of many Christmas dinners, thou too art gone, and dog's bondage may know thee no more for ever. The Reverend Andiram Smith, who preached her funeral sermon, drew largely upon the book of Proverbs for illustrations of her character, and said that better pumpkin pies or a better exhibition of grace he had never known any woman to make before. A kind heart has characterized Mrs. Partington from her childhood up, displayed in many ways. Her benevolence got far in advance of her grammar in her early days, and in her sayings at times are detected certain inaccuracies that some people are inclined to laugh at. But if they will stop a little and see the yellow kernels of wisdom gleaming out through the thickly surrounding verbiage, they will raise their hats in grateful respect for the bounty afforded. The domestic history of Mrs. Partington requires a nice pen to portray it. So full was it of delicate beauty and delightful incident. Marriage meant something in old times. It was no holiday affair, donned like a garment, to be regarded as worthless when the fashion changed. It grew out of no sickly sentiment that had its existence in the yellow fever of a wretched romance, as unlike true life as a cabbage is to a rose or the sear of autumn, a more fitting simile to the vernal spring. It was a healthy, hearty, happy old institution in those days, was matrimony, 
and people jogged along together in the harness of its duties as harmoniously as the right hand and the left could help each other and yet don't seem to know it so natural is the service rendered as if they were born to it and as the right hand or the right eye sympathizes with the left so did the twain thus united sympathize duty and affection leaned upon each other and inseparably strove to make the home hearth cheerful it became pleasure to carry the sweet drink to the thirsty man in the field of mowing or to bear the basket of luncheon to the woods where the red-browed man was chopping wood for winter or to patiently hold the light in the long winter evenings when the yokes were to be mended or the harness repaired and it became pleasure when the goodman went to town to stow his pockets with something nice for the wife at home a new dress or a new apron the remembrance of whose face would come to him when away and hasten his departure back it was that remembrance which prompted the mare into an urgent trot on the last mile home though she couldn't see the necessity for it and his eye looked brighter when he saw the cheerful face at the window looking down the road and shook his whip at it as it smiled at him as much as to say let me get near you and and what ask the walls and the bureau in the corner and the buffet where the china was or the milk pans upon the dresser what no jars occurred in a home that owned such a pair can the right hand quarrel with the left can the left eye cast severe glances upon the right the home where a true marriage exists is blessed and the man who finds his domesticity cast in a mould such as we have described may be called happy in the fullest sense of the blissful word it would have done all of us good to peep in upon fireside scenes at the partington mansion the fireplace with its wide and hospitable arms extended looked like an incentive to population having family capacity revealed in its huge dimensions it was a brave idea of seat parting tone and when he laid the cornerstone of the beanville structure he had visions of a posterity as numerous as the leaves of the sweetbriar bush that waved by his door alas how were those visions verified as a few generations saw the line of seek diminishing to find its end at last like the snap of a whiplash in one little knot but those scenes it was the custom of the corporal in the long nights of winter to seat himself in the right corner of the old fireplace while the dame occupied the other and read by the light of a mutton tallow candle such literature as the house afforded this was comprised in the family bible an old and massive volume that adorned the black bureau under the glass a copy of army tactics presented to paul by a revolutionary soldier and a copy of dudley levitt's almanac these were read by the light of mutton fat aloud while mrs partington pursued her knitting in the corner nodding at times perhaps as the theme was dull or familiar but the smile always rewarded Paul's effort to amuse her as much as if he hadn't read the same things over and over a thousand times. The small covered earthen pitcher kept time to his reading often, and sung and sputtered upon the coals between the old-fashioned dog andirons, as if a spirit were within, struggling to throw off the cover that restrained it and escape. Regularly, as the hand of the old bull's-eye watch on the nail over the mantelpiece denoted the hour of nine, was the book laid by and the mug taken from the fire and its steaming contents poured into the white earthen bowl upon the table which sent up a vapour that rolled upon the dark walls like a fragrant cloud and made the room redolent with the fume of the mulled cider that smoothed the pillow of paul it was pleasant too to have a neighbour come in at times and spend an evening when the big dish of apples would be brought on and the sparkling cider that snapped and foamed in an ambition to be drank crowned the board and then such stories as would be told of breakings out and great trainings and immense gunnings in which exploits were achieved that my voracious pen would hardly dare recall and the old indian wars would be fought again by the light of tradition and the above-named tallow candle and the tales be retold of revolutionary valor that signalized itself in seventy six perhaps a song would be sung commemorating old times in the quaint melody that knew no artistic skill beyond nature's teaching mrs partington as the presiding genius of these scenes shed the radiance of her presence over the circle as the sunflower claims eminence in a garden of marigolds 
her sage voice was heard in wise counsel and in giving the news of who was sick or dead or about to be married or wasn't about to be married but ought to be she was at home the time we speak of was near the close of paul's career before the sad military reverse took place which broke his heart it would be impossible in the small space allotted to us to describe all the virtues of mrs partington it were best to make an aggregate of good and call it all hers the herbs that adorned the garret walls in innumerable paper bags were not gathered for herself the balm of gilead buds and rum that occupied their position in the buffet were not prepared for her but at the first note of distress from a neighbour her aid was ever ready she was the first who was sent for on important occasions when good wives must be wakened from their beds at midnight and to this day half the population at beanville speak of the benevolent face that bent over them in the first moments of their struggle with existence and gave them a better impression of life than after experience verified and catnip tea and saffron became palatable when commended by a spoon held by her she knew the age of every one in the village and had politicians not rendered the word hackneyed we would say she had the antecedents of every one at her fingers ends she was as good as an almanac for chronological dates and in the matter of historical incidents dudley levitt and mrs p generally came out neck and neck she had a great reverence for this same almanac and we cannot refrain from speaking of an incident in connection with it she put implicit faith in its predictions and the weather-table stood like a guide-board to direct her on her meteorological march through the year one year however everything went wrong storms took place that were not mentioned and those mentioned never occurred the moon's phases were all out of joint and the good dame sat up all one cold night to watch for an advertised eclipse that didn't come off for a long time she tried to vindicate her favourite but at last when a windy day predicted proved as mild a one as ever the sun shone on her faith wavered to be entirely overthrown by a cold north-easterly storm that had been set down for pleasant a timely discovery that ike had put a last year's almanac instead of the true one alone saved the credit of that mathematical standard of natural law her domestic virtues were of the most exalted kind cleanliness was with her a habit and every windy day was sure to see Paul's regimentals upon a clothesline in the yard, dancing away with a levity altogether at variance with the rules of military propriety. A spider never dared to obtrude his presence upon the homestead. A moth never corrupted the sanctuary of woolen that her care and a little camphor had touched. The white floor of the Partingtonian kitchen was as full of knots as a map of New Hampshire is of hills, from frequent scourings and though she never scoured through and fell into the cellar like the dutch damsel we read of it did not seem at all improbable that such an event might happen but her benevolence was the crowning characteristic of her life developing itself in a thousand and more ways it sought to make every one around her happy she commenced taking snuff with an eye solely to its social tendencies and her box was a continual offering to friendship when the last war broke out she headed a volunteer list of patriotic women to make shirts for the soldiers, and gave them encouragement and souchong tea to work for the brave men that were exposing themselves to peril. And she scraped Paul's only linen shirt, an heirloom, by the way, in the family, up into lint for the wounded soldiers. A fitting spouse was she for Corporal Paul. Her reputation for benevolence was spread all over the land, like butter upon a hot johnny-cake of her own baking, and her current wine for the sick got a premium for three successive years in the cattle fair. Alas, that we have not room to pursue the theme further. We must take a flying leap over many incidents and hasten on. When Paul's younger brother Peter, the Peter that went out west in his youth, whose wife joined the Mormons, died, he sent his little Isaac to the care of the widow of Paul, and from his earliest infancy he has been her care she never had any children of her own and her solicitude is earnestly engaged for him he is as merry a boy as you will find any day and though a little tricky and mischievous the first beginning of malice doesn't abide with him his tricks do not flow from any premeditation of fun even they spring spontaneously and naturally as the lambs skip or the birds sing 
whether he takes the bellows nose for a cannon or saws off the acorn on the tall old-fashioned chair for a top it is all a matter of course and his bright face knows no cloud when rebuked for what he has done but he turns to new mischiefs with new zest such is ike he is now eleven years just upon the dividing line between accountability and indulgence beyond which boyish mischief becomes malice to be trained by the magic of a leather strap professor wideswarth a member of the partington family like a remarkable case in the paper of long standing has associated the two in a poem which for sublimity is surpassed by coleridge's hymn in the valley of shimuni but then they are nothing alike and parties may divide on their respective merits one thing about the song it is authentic in its details as we have heard averred by the old lady herself the music set to a rocking-chair movement was very popular when it was first issued and the editor of the blaze in a complimentary notice of it said no musical library could be perfect without it the poem we give below mrs partington at tea good mistress p sat sipping her tea sipping it sipping it isaac and she what though the wind blew fiercely around and the rain on the pane gave a comfortless sound little cared she kind mistress p as isaac and she sat sipping their tea and in memory what sights did she see as isaac and she sat sipping their tea she turned her gaze to the opposite wall where hung the portrait of corporal paul and fancies free to mistress p arose in her mind like the steam of the tea and little saw she blind mistress p as silently she sat sipping her tea with her eyes on the wall and her mind away that isaac was taking that time to play and wicked was he to mistress p as dreamily she sat sipping her tea for isaac he in diablerie emptied her appie into her tea and the old dame tasted and tasted on till she thought good soul that her taste was gone for the souchong tea and the strong rapee sorely puzzled the palate of mistress p this moral you see is drawn from the tea that isaac had ruined for mistress p forever will mix in the cup of our joy the dark rapee of sorrow's alloy and none are free any more than she from annoying alloys that mix with their tea we have spoken before of the partington mansion having been removed to make way for the beanville railroad it was taken after paul's demise he never would have parted with it thus he would have fortified it and defended it while a charge of powder remained in the old powder-horn that hung above the mantelpiece or a billet of wood was left to hurl at assailants but alas paul was not there and his amiable relic opposed but feeble resistance to the encroachment of the new power as she herself forcibly expressed it what was the use of her trying to go again a railroad it was hard for her to give up the old mansion endeared by so many recollections not a thousand merely the number usually given as the poetical limit but infinite in number for they embraced all of the days of her wedded happiness and the companionship of the corporal this sketch of the life of mrs partington would be imperfect were we to omit giving a brief notice of the picture of the inestimable lady that stands as our frontispiece we have long felt that an admiring public deserved a more definitive expression of her than could be gained from the mere words however wise that fell from her oracular lips a sense of justice to her innumerable merits has impelled us to redeem her from the uncertainty of mere verbal delineation and here we have produced her the fair ideal of wise simplicity it was with great difficulty that we secured this boon for the world a modest diffidence that fifty-seven winters have not weakened made her unwilling that her likeness should be thus submitted to the unsparing gaze of thousands in vain we urged many illustrious examples of like martyrdom of men who from pure philanthropy had sacrificed themselves in the everlasting reproach of stereotype from the never souring old jacob to the meek elder barry blessing the world with disinterested benevolence at a dollar a quart bottle six bottles for five dollars she was not to be moved by any argument we could offer and we were about to abandon the idea in despair when the strategy of isaac effected what diplomacy had failed to accomplish snugly ensconced in an old clothes-press by isaac for three days 
our artist was enabled through the keyhole to watch the varied expression that flitted across her time-worn face and his genius achieved its high triumph at the moment when Payne's gas had become the concentrated object of her thought, and oblivious to all external scene and circumstance, her mind was grappling that huge problem in a vain effort to get a little light upon the subject. This is the precise moment at which the artist has taken her, impaled her, so to speak, in view of its correctness on his pencil point, and transferred her, still quick with life, to the breathing paper. The faithfulness of this picture cannot be too much admired. We have at a glance the whole character of the old lady in her blessed lineaments, with a benignity like a cup of sleeper's best ninyong irradiating every feature. The cat border crowns like a halo the brow upon whose lofty height benevolence sits enthroned. The lock of grey vibrates tremulously in the wintry air, the specks repose tranquilly in the abstractedness of meditation, the pinned kerchief and modest plates enfolds a breast whose every throb is kindly. The knitting-work, the close attendant upon her loneliness, has its position, and the busy fingers in diligent competition ply the gleaming wires. The ancient chair, sacred to memory, the one that came over in the Mayflower, is presented in its puritanic uprightness, and at its back hangs the ridicule, in whose mysterious depths dwelleth many a rare antique, that the light of day hath not seen since the memorable fourteen. Upon the little pine table, white as snow from frequent inflictions of soap and sand, are seen that snuff-box and that teapot, the little black one, in the respective solaces of which the ills of life have found mitigation, and grief has been allayed of half its bitterness. The amelioration of Maccaboy relieving the woes of widowhood and sorrow finding cessation neath the softening influence of Souchong. Above, upon the wall, hangs Paul's ancient profile in dark rigidity, like a soldier on parade, staring straight forward at nothing, the unbending integrity of whose dicky stands in marked contrast with the charcoal of his complexion. And long and often has that profile been scanned by fond eyes in vain effort to detect one line of the olden affection that warmed the original, or dwelt in the hard-spelt character of Paul's epistles, that well-worn and well-saved are yet treasured in the old black bureau-desk in the corner. And carefully the sprig of sweet fern is renewed above the picture every year when the berries lure Ike to the woods, and he comes back laden with pine and fern and hemlock, to garnish the fireplace and mantelpiece withal. That handkerchief has been preserved as a sacred relic since the corporal's battle days, when, in young devotion, he laid it, blazoned with the glory of the Constitution and Guerriere upon her lap, and standing by her with his artillery sword gleaming in his hand, vowed by its edge that his love for her should divide with that for his country. The story has not been written of his deeds of arms, of his moving accidents by flood and field, and dangers in the imminent deadly breaches of his parades in the artillery, and his campaign dinner once a year. These remain to be written, and the biographer of Paul Partington shall set the world aglow with the recital of deeds that have been hid like the diamond in the ashes, but have lost no ray of brilliancy. It may, however, be well to give a few of these exploits as illustrative of the character of the person in whose heroism we may detect an influence the dates from dog's bondage, and nice discriminators may, by close scrutiny, see therein the fusion of the fiery blood of Seek the Kingdom Continually Parting Tongue, the trumpeter of Oliver Cromwell, and the gentle outside current that met, mingled, and softened, the vini vidi vici of conjugal triumph, and formed no merely bloody warrior, but a hero, whose sword would be stained by nothing worse than the mark of cheese that crowned the board of war. When the news came in the last war that the British had landed on the coast, although nine miles from Beanville, his voice waked the people from their slumbers, calling them to arms. It was his plume that was seen gleaming in the light of the stars, as he dashed through the town on horseback, urging his steed on through the mud at the rate of five miles an hour. It was his warlike skill that arranged the eleven men of Beanville into a phalanx of attack. 
and it was his eloquence that called upon them as husbands, fathers, patriots, and Christians to fight and die like men. When afterwards it was discovered that all the alarm arose from seeing two men in their boats drawing lobster nets, the merit of valour did not depart from Paul Partington, and though he never got the brevet as sergeant promised him by the general of division, yet the people honoured him, and the battle of the bloody leaven, as they were called, formed a theme for gossip in the tavern at Beanville for many a day. When the call came for volunteers to throw up fortifications in Boston Harbour, he was the first man to enroll his name. His pickaxe struck the first blow for his country in this service. His use of the spade rendered his advice invaluable to the commanding officer, and he could tell to a fraction how many shovels full to take from one portion, and how many wheelbarrow loads to put in another. His overalls were in the front of the fight. His arm was fearlessly bared in the encounter. But alas for his country, he got a grain of gravel in his eye, and had to go home after exhorting his comrades-in-arms to dig on, and giving his overalls to one who needed them. He was afterwards pensioned for his injury, having been very favourably mentioned in the orders of the day. But in the muster-field was his greatest triumph. The smell of gunpowder he snuffed like the war steed from afar. In the intricacies of sham fight he was at home. He was always selected to lead the forlorn hope in an attack, and his compressed lips and flashing eyes were precursors of victory. It became a standing rule that he must beat, but when the mad sergeant from the city who commanded the point to be attacked wouldn't give in and charged home upon the corporal, driving him back at the point of the bayonet, whereby he lost three of his men and his credit in a bog through which they were compelled to pass, the star of the corporal waned. His martial spirit departed from that hour. Even though a court-martial was ordered at once, and the sergeant ordered to be shot, which fate was only avoided by his speedy departure from Beanville, it was of no avail. The careful nursing of Ruth availed nothing. He took to his bed, had his artillery sword and cap hung upon a nail where he could see them, and lay down to die. The skill of the country doctor with a pair of saddle-bags filled with medicine, and the whole pharmacopoeia of Mrs. P. couldn't save him, and after making his will like a prudent citizen and a good soldier, he bade the world good night, and Paul was not. No sound can awake him to glory again. He was buried with military honors by the Beanville Artillery, who for twenty years voted annually to erect a monument to his memory, and then gave it up. The poet of the village, in anticipation of the monument, had prepared an epitaph, which we subjoin. Here lies, beneath this heap of earth, a hero of extensive worth, a whole-souled man, full six feet tall, surnamed Partington, christened Paul. The parish burying ground in Beanville, a sketch of which is here subjoined, is situated in the bend of the turnpike leading from Clover Hill, and it is a shrine much visited in the summer months by terriers at the village, for all that was Paul Partington rests beneath the turf with naught but a tall sweet briar to mark the spot, standing like a sentinel on duty, armed at all points, and watching the slumber of the hero of the bloody leaven. The picture was taken by a travelling artist while riding over the turnpike on the stage-coach, who was so struck with the picturesque beauty of the scene that he made an eight miles an hour sketch of it in his portfolio. It is to this spot, on each returning season, that Mrs. Partington comes, by virtue of a free pass allowed her by the Beanville Branch Railroad, and brings Isaac, and praises the ancient corporal's virtues, and tries to incite the boy's ambition to be like him. And he likes to come, for, while he is drinking in the words which Mrs. Partington imparts, he can watch the chipmunks on the decaying wall, and slyly shy stones at birds whose confidence leads them to approach the spot, and twitter upon the mullein stalks that grow rankly by the gate. We say naught but a sweet briar-tree marks the spot. The old gravestone, with its hard-faced remembrance of Paul, has been carried off in relics by modern vandals. Chip by chip has the ancient monument disappeared. That affection paid for to the city stone-cutter and placed here, until not a scrap of it is left. The ancient stone of blue slate, with its jolly death's head, that appeared as if quick with mirth, 
the winged chubby cherubs in the corners that looked like babies living in uncomfortable fat like doughnuts the simple inscription in roman characters commemorative of the roman virtues of paul and the quaint epitaph that told in equivocal english of a future hope all have been chipped off but thanks to art that can restore the lost and create that which never existed that monument is before us for our admiration how many shocks of elemental war has that antiquated block of monumental sculpture withstood successfully standing despite the snow and frost of winter or the tornadoes of summer to be carried off piece by piece in the pockets of encroaching pilgrims but there is a glory in the idea of a gravestone's being used up in breastpins to be more choicely cherished than the richest rubies there were melancholy days in the partingtonian mansion when paul stepped out the old chair stood by the right side of the fireplace as if waiting to be occupied the mug simmered in the winter evenings between the andirons with a mournful measure as if responsive to the wind that made a muss and hurly-burly about the chimney-top but only one now partook of its contents the regimentals were aired upon the clothesline and inflated with wind seemed at times like the corporal himself cut up in parcels who was alas to fill them no more the settling of the estate broke in upon this dull and monotonous existence and in the excitement of the law she forgot the sorrow that as she said made her nothing but flesh skin and bones the remark she made concerning probate offices is recorded as a living evidence of her sagacity someone spoke to her about the probate proceedings regarding the estate yes said she it is probit probit all the time and if the poor widowless body gets the whole she don't get half enough the remark likewise about doing things by attorney will be remembered until it is forgotten don't do anything by power of eternity said she for if you do you will never see the end of it what profundity but the estate was settled after much delay and the farm carried on at the halves by a neighbor whose honesty was no security against the temptation of plethoric crops and opportunity the hay fell off in the accounts the recorded corn denoted a speedy famine and a more disastrous havoc of potato rot has never since transpired than assailed her crops but this state of things came to an end instead of the farm as was threatened the march of improvement led to the need of a railroad through beanville and the partingtonian mansion became a sacrifice to the ruthless spirit of progress that all grasping stops not at anything in its path whether it be a homestead or a hemisphere mrs partington left beanville reluctantly as she herself has said it was useless to try to stand against a railroad and the city offering inducements in the way of education for isaac the legacy left her by the brother of paul she anchored her bark in the municipal haven where her benevolence of act intention and sentiment has been spread broadcast and many a smile has grown out of her lines that have been cast in pleasant places there is a mystery thrown about the brother of paul that we cannot unravel all that is known of him is that he was a pioneer in western civilization was wounded in the black hawk war and died on his way to beanville forwarding isaac and a black silk handkerchief of boys clothes by stage to their destination but in isaac is centred the affection that shed its rays about her early years and in him she sees the nucleus of a partingtonian progeny that shall appease the spirit of seek the kingdom partington if it be knocking round amid sublunar scenes she takes every occasion to describe his exalted origin on a recent occasion while in the street with isaac a citizen soldier in all the pride of regulation uniform passed them see said the boy with animation does that look like uncle paul she looked at him half offended no said she with pride in her expression he is no more like your uncle than hyperion fluid is like a satire there was shakespeare and dignity in the remark and isaac turned with emotion to look at the picture of a monkey in a window tempting a chained dog by holding his tail within an inch of the canine nose speaking of the monkey's tail reminds us that we are nearly to the end of our tale about mrs partington we at the first thought of getting an autobiography of the old lady which would have greatly enhanced the interest of the book and had asked her to give us something of this kind but one afternoon as we were revolving some stupendous idea 
the nebraska bill maybe or the gadsden treaty or mr marcy's letter with our feet in slippers a foot or two above our head and puffing one of those choice habanos that the importer had sent in we felt a finger on our shoulder get out woman we cried somewhat tartly there's nothing for you heaven help us we thought it was the woman with the rummy breath that had haunted us for days the touch was repeated and looking around to frown down the intruder the mild gaze of mrs partington was bent upon us the chair from the other room was brought in so you thought it was the beggar woman did you said she well suppose it had have been couldn't you have given her a soft word if you hadn't any money was there anything harmonious in her asking you for a penny we felt rebuked but continued she smilingly i have come to say about the writing matter that it will do just as well if you write it for me generally i suppose a naughty biography is better if it is writ by one's self but i can trust you to do me justice what a privilege macaulay says somewhere that boswell was the only true biographer that ever wrote by the star that is now before us we ejaculated looking at mrs partington he shall yet confess that another has been found and bozzy's glories be shared with us mrs partington smiled at our enthusiasm and passed out of the door and down the stairs and waved an adieu to us a moment afterwards from the steps of an omnibus that was to take her home we have thus given the life of mrs partington with her antecedents and co-associates it is a desultory story unlike perhaps anything you have seen before dear reader try to fancy its oddity a reason for praise remember the dull and hackneyed path of common biographers and remember too that this is the biography of no common person but that of mrs partington a name not born to die perhaps you may recognize in the oddity of the sketch a gleam of the eccentricity that has marked her sayings in the hope that he has pleased you the biographer places his hand on his heart and bows as the curtain descends to slow music end of section one